This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, I'm Matt Ryan, the Poly Theater Director. Welcome to Script Scheme Presents Whiplash. Uh, Script to Screen tells the story of the, the screenplay from the effect of writers, directors, actors, and producers. It's brought to you by the UCSB Department of Film and Media Studies, Carsey Wolf Center, and Gaucho Scott Frank, writer-director. Uh, today, we're very, very excited to have Whiplash. Whiplash has gotten five Oscar uh, nominations for Best Picture, Supporting Actor, and J.K. Simmons' favorite to win. Best Adapted Screenplay, this guy's favorite to win. Uh, best editor and best sound mixer. So, please welcome the Apollo Theater team, Davian Chazel, writer director of Whiplash. <laughs> so, just to let you know, uh, before for the safety of my students and myself, we've gotten rid of all symbols and throwable chairs in case the tempo of the Q and A is not Got perfect. <laughs> Uh, so let's go back to the origins of the story. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it's the, sometimes the best scripts are the ones written you know, from personal experience or feelings. How did this come about for you? Did you have a connection to being a jazz musician? I did. I, um, I was a drummer when I was uh, in high school, and, um, and I had a teacher that was very kind of much in this, in this mold. And, and he, you know, it was the sort of thing where drumming had been this kind of hobby for me, for, for myself that, you know, I, I enjoyed but didn't take all that seriously. And then as soon as I kind of got into the orbit of this conductor and his, this teacher and his, uh, his big band that he, that he ran, it suddenly felt like life or death every day. You know, it just felt like the worst thing possible would be to, you know, screw up, uh, a hit or, or, or a beat or come in early or come in late. Um, and, and so I just remember the dread, the like the kind of daily dose of dread that I would feel during that time. Um, I don't play that much anymore, but you know, it's just you get a lot of you get a lot of fodder from that sort of emotional experience. And and it occurred to me that you know that there might be a subject for a movie there about you know hopefully not just about jazz drumming, but about um, that kind of power dynamic and whether it can ever be justified. Um, and so that's sort of where it came from. Uh, that's an interesting question for the end of the movie, uh, whether it was it justified. Right. Right. Uh, so I love, the first shot has Andrew isolated alone in the, with the drum set. Do you st- and it's really foreshadowing his future. Uh, <laughs> uh, do you start with an image like that in your head while you're writing, or does that kind of just come about through the writing more drafts? Yeah, I think... Um the beginning of the movie, the beginning and the end of the movie were always pretty much like I knew exactly the first image of the movie and I knew what the last image of the movie would be. And they're, they're, I mean, they're bookend images. They're the same thing. It's, it's a push-in on Andrew drumming. Um, and, uh, and then everything in between, I think, sort of wound up, uh, wound up taking shape as I wrote. But you know, I, I wrote it as something I knew I would direct. You know, um, I didn't know if anyone would you know, let me direct it, uh, but I knew, like, <laughs> no one else was going to direct it while, you know, while I was around. So, so I wrote it very much with images in my head and, um, and you know, kind of playing the scenes out in my head and knowing sort of roughly how they would be shot. And then, and then after writing it, I storyboarded the whole thing and, and uh, just kind of drawing, you know, even sometimes just crude, like, stick figure drawings, but enough for myself to kind of know... Um, how things would go and then the closer we were to shooting once we got closer to shooting I actually took pre-records the music and cut the storyboards to the music 
So mm-hmm. we could kind of have like a sort of like makeshift animatic, essentially, of all the music sequences and see, like, for example, the whole last scene, see how those 10 minutes would actually feel. Um, so it's, it's kind of, you know, got more and more visually prepared as, as I got closer to shooting. But, um, but, you know, through that process, some things changed dramatically, but certain things like the opening of the movie just pretty much didn't change at all. And that helped you writing, knowing how you, it just helped you a lot knowing how you start and end. Like, you knew exactly where you needed to go. Yeah. Which sometimes is the worst kind of thing. To, I mean, often where you end is like the it's it's the thing that that drives you the most crazy. But um, I think that's probably why my and like I've kind of realized with my whatever my pro, whatever process works the best for me. It really helps to know, even if it winds up changing. Really helps knowing exactly. It's hard to begin a script without knowing exactly what the ending is going to be. Not just in and not just in broad sort of structural strokes, X, Y, and Z will happen, but literally what the last image is going to be, what the last sound in the movie is going to be, what literally what the feeling you want in the theater when it cuts to black is going to be. I had one screenwriter professor say, always write your act three first. Mm. And it was just, and act two is yeah. the hardest part, getting to there, but no yeah, more. Act two sucks, but, <laughs> but, uh, but act three is, you know, I mean, again, and even if you're literally not, I mean, I do tend to write just chronologically, but... But you know you want to know you definitely want to know where you're headed, and so it's, I mean people have asked me before whether you know to what extent the ending of this movie sort of changed shape, and you know there were some particulars of kind of how he got on stage that changed shape, but basically by the time he's on stage all the way to the end, it's it's pretty much word for word what it is in the movie. So obviously the the first scene with J.K. coming out of the shadows, uh, dark. It sets up the whole movie, sets up their relationship dynamics. Yeah. How, how long did it take you to find that kind of, that scene, because it was so pivotal, you know, the balance between the two? And the, uh, you mean the, in the writing of it? Yeah, in the writing of yeah, it. Yeah, I, um, I like the, I think, I think actually it has a lot to do with actually how I sort of initially conceived the movie. I'd been trying to write stuff for a while that was kind of a little more unwieldy and bigger and a little more sort of sprawling and hadn't really gotten anywhere. I'd had a few sort of dead ends of scripts I'd poured a lot of passion into and then wound up just kind of, like, not very good. You know, not only unmakeable, but literally, like, my intention wasn't really translating. So part of the intent with Whiplash was, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna write something small and focused and lean and mean and 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 really sort of simple in a way like hopefully not simplistic hopefully you can you can sort of expand it to to a bigger canvas of ideas but the actual story itself i wanted to be incredibly clear cut and about you know two people with very clearly defined goals who are just going like this um until they realize they have the same goal basically but but so so it was, it, it, it was important from that whole kind of thinking that from the very first image of the movie, the very first scene in the movie, that it just be very much what it was, that there'd be no beating around the bush. So it's like the movie was going to be about a drummer, so you literally open with a guy drumming. And, and the story itself is really about the drummer's relationship with the teacher. So that's what the first scene had to be. It had to introduce the drummer, the teacher, and tell you exactly what that relationship was going to be. And then the rest of the movie could basically just vary, you know, riff on that on that on that theme, but I like the idea of basically having an entire movie within the opening scene of a movie, um, and kind of giving the audience the clothesline that then you can sort of elaborate on as it goes on. It's also a good way to attract actors. They get their part in the first five pages of the script. They understand the characters. So. Right, right. It's it's it's. Uh, I mean, constantly with my head, it was also with, with the script. It was just you know, the you know the idea of a a movie set entirely in a jazz you know conservatory. <laughs> 
um, centered around a drummer who's not, you know, it's not like the, it's not the greatest elevator pitch in Hollywood. <laughs> and, and so it's like, it was really, it was really kind of thinking about what is the, how am I going to keep people turning the page, you know? Because um, it's just like, if you open it and it's, you know, someone discussing music theory or something, it was, not, it was just going to be like a, it was, so it was really like, okay, figuring out what the story is and making sure that that story is articulated as soon as possible. Because then, then that gives you the leeway. I mean, ideally, it gives you the leeway to literally end the movie with a 10-minute drum solo, you know? But if you, if you begin it with a 10-minute drum solo, you so it's like, it had to find a way. All right, so of course I'm dying to get jump to the are you rushing or dragging moment. Uh, one of the great moments of the movie, but a little bit the setup for that from a screenwriting standpoint, it's really fascinating to me. You really play with hope and despair in a moment. You know, oh, Andrew gets accepted, yay! Right. Everybody's excited. Then five seconds later, he berates the out of tune player. Then J.K.'s nice, like, oh, what's your mom like? And then a minute later, it's like your mom left you, and of course, the scene. How did you sequence that? Were you conscious, like, I wanted Andrew to keep flipping? Like, I don't. I don't know how. It's interesting because I'm not sure how methodical it really was at the outset. That whole chunk of the script is probably the most kind of purely autobiographical chunk, and um, everything about how Andrew is sort of chosen for the band, or how he's kind of first chewed out when when the teacher first finds him practicing, then chosen for the band over the older drummer, really excited to be in the band, and then they play Whiplash, like, and then he sees this tuning thing happening, and then he feels good, and then he feels bad. Like, the entire kind of up and down was really just me tapping into how I felt my first days in this, in this very competitive jazz orchestra that I was, you know, seemingly lucky enough to be, to be invited into. It was, it was the sort of orchestra in, in, in my town that everyone wanted to be in, you know, and so, so when the door is open, you feel like you're kind of stepping into a... Uh, into a, uh, you know, in, in, into a, uh, it's like the party you've always wanted to be invited to. Um, so I kind of, it, it made it very easy to just, and I knew I wanted it to be very subjective, you know, that, that this was going to be entirely from Andrew's point of view. So trying to just dial into what that sort of roller coaster feels like. And ultimately, I mean, whether it's hope or despair, the entire thing is just insecurity. I mean, at the end of the day, it's like everything is just motivated by Andrew as someone who craves approval. So when, when he's the perfect victim for Fletcher in a way, because as soon as Fletcher dangles a carrot, Andrew goes wide-eyed. Um, and as soon as the stick comes out, Andrew is completely helpless and, and has you know, let down his guard for that to happen. Um, so it was kind of remembering how naive and sort of craving of approval I was back then, and in some ways still am, um, and, and, and trying to really just write it from that perspective. But it was all, I mean, it was in a way the easiest part of the script to write because it was just, I mean, literally rushing, dragging that whole, like having myself being, like being stopped and started over and over again in front of the band is just, that was my daily, my daily band <laughs> experience, you know? And, and tempo was always this kind of, this elusive, you know, it's the most fundamental thing for a drummer. Um, and, you know, if you're a drummer who doesn't keep good time, it's like being a blind painter or something. It's just like, it's, it's a fundamental part of your repertoire is missing. Um, and I was always a decent drummer, but I always uh, had struggled with my kind of inner clock, the inner sense of tempo. And my conductor knew that. And so that's what he used. And um, so those words, you know, not my tempo, you know, you're rushing, you're dragging, you're this, you're that, just became, you know, it's just like, it's, it's like the words that, you, that, that I feared every day hearing. Uh, when I was in rehearsal, so it made it very easy to kind of tap into that and write a suspense scene based on that. Yeah, I also found that the, the girlfriend scenes interesting. 
especially how Andrew almost used his knowledge of her insecurities against her. Yeah. Like Fletcher. I found that was really good to do. Do you think about that when you were sequencing it? Or that, yeah, yeah. That, that was certainly more, that was more methodical, I, I think, in terms of like the actual symmetry of it, because that was, that was a somewhat less autobiographical part of the script. And, um, and, uh, <laughs> so no girl ever said, get out of here when you asked her on a date? <laughs> oh, no, that happens all the time. The, uh, <laughs> that meant the other part. Uh, uh, no, the, the like it was it was it was very much thinking like the, that. Andrew was, you know, I knew there'd be three three sequences with uh, with Nicole with, with with this character, and and that Andrew would be in a very different spot in each three sequences. And the first sequence is is Andrew at the beginning of the movie, who is again this sort of wide eyed child who is just uh, needing approval and is naive and. And you know, you know, she kind of fucks with him in the way that that Fletcher does, but obviously in a much more, um, in a much more humane fashion, you know. Um, but he sort of responds, and then the second scene is is Andrew's now at a moment where he's he's uh, he's starting to gain a certain bit more of confidence, but there's still a lot of humanity to him, you know. And uh, and so it's maybe a moment where they can actually kind of meet in the middle. Um, it's like the most hopeful scene of the movie, I think. Um, uh, and it really does represent the road that he could take. Uh, uh, the, the sort of looks that they give each other at the very end, to me, is sort of that's what I was kind of hoping to communicate: is that there's there, there is a door open for him there if he chooses to go through it. Um, but then by the time we're at the third scene, he's become a mini Fletcher. You know, he's he's essentially. I mean, I really do believe that you know bullies beget bullies, and abuse begets abuse, and. Um, and that Andrew winds up carrying out the same, exactly the same, without even realizing it, subconsciously carrying out exactly the same behavior that's been targeted at him onto not just Nicole, but his dad and everyone who cares about him. Which I, I love that scene because it's surprising because usually in that scene, it's like, I could find a better woman than you or, you know, someone would say something like that. It was interesting. It was like, mm-hmm. I just can't be great with you. I thought right. that was a nice little twist. Well, it's also a deeply selfish kind of point of view because it's... it's uh, you know, obviously, it's all about him, him, him. But it's also it's in the way I kind of Miles and I talked about how to sort of do that scene is. This is something he's like rehearsed to a wall, and essentially, like it makes no difference in his mind saying it to a wall or saying it to her. He's gone into this point. He's gone into this place in his in his life and his psyche, um, where the tunnel vision has become so narrow that literally anything that is not Fletcher, that is not music. Is is might as well be an inanimate object. It's just it's it, there. There is nothing. Um, and so, like Miles, one one thing I really loved about working with Miles as an actor is just he's very good at kind of dialing up or down the amount of expressiveness in his eyes. And and so the, the I find like earlier in the movie, there's a lot going on in his eyes that increasingly, as the movie progresses, whether he's with Nicole or with his dad or with his family. His eyes just become kind of become deader and deader and deader, and um, and that's a hard thing to direct an actor to do. But he just kind of instinctively sort of knew, even though we were shooting out of sequence, he instinctively knew, kind of, w- in what way he had to be looking at people. Yeah, I mean that's great nonverbal. He's a great nonverbal actor, right? Which gives him so much more freedom. I, I don't have to do a line of dialogue. I know he can just deliver deliver yeah. just by a look. Absolutely. Uh, is there anything else that really surprised you about Miles? Like something he brought to your scripted character that you didn't even see when you were writing? Yeah, I mean, I think he, we, I mean, in a way, we sort of, we had this great kind of meeting in the middle in the sense that I think we each kind of helped each other. I, he's, 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 he's very much the kind of actor who has, has a sort of radar of, 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 uh, you know, a radar for phony, for, for fakery. 
you know, and 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 he he really sort of wants everything to be as grounded as possible, which obviously a lot of actors do, but he's got a really sort of fine-tuned radar for it, for when stuff is, is, is tipping out of scale. Um, but of course, then there's scenes in this movie where we needed or I needed the emotion to get to a certain place. So I would often be pushing him forward, and he would be sort of reining things back, and we would wind up sort of, it wound up being a kind of great rhythm in the sense where you'd think that would, all, that would be a conflict on set, but it actually wound up being the opposite because... Um, he wound up grounding what I'd written, and and I wound up, you know, being able to heighten what he was doing, you know. And it, so I think it's it was it wound up being slightly different than anything he had done before as an actor. Um, um, and you, you know, it results, I think, in what you're saying that that it winds up being this kind of you know somehow nuanced, nonverbal performance that still that still kind of operates in this sort of over the top, you know, register that the whole movie had to kind of exist at. Now, let's talk a little J.K. Simmons, Fletcher uh, development. What, what did he bring? Anything surprised you? Or what did he give you that kind of, wow? <laughs> Other uh, than, you know, every scene he was in. You're right. Um, uh, him, even, him even agreeing to do the movie was, was, was a wow. You know, it was because it was, literally there was no money. There was, we gave him a script. Um, we did a short film first, uh, f- basically a scene pulled from the script to help kind of, you know, convince people that I could direct it, convince people that it could be makeable, you know, basically just like a calling card. And, you know, Norm, I mean, someone like him, you know, does not have to do stuff like that. But he, uh, he signed on right from the beginning. He did the short with us um, before, again, before there was any promise that there even would be a feature. Um, and then, and he just stuck with the, the project through the, whole, through the whole process. So I, I got to actually see him play Fletcher twice, you know, in a way. Um, we, this, the short was the first studio band rehearsal scene, whereas the chair throw and all that stuff. So I got to, I got to see two different versions of that. I got to, he got to throw chairs at two different Andrews, which is, <laughs> I think he was, he was really happy about. Um, and, and it was just amazing. I just remember, like, there's so little credit I can, I can actually take for his performance because from the first moment that he stepped on set, and this would have been, again, the short, it was such a fully realized performance, you know, that, that um, it had been very specifically written on the page, but he, he just physicalized it and internalized it and made it real and made it concrete and made it musical. He comes from a music background himself. He went to music school originally. So he, he not only did that give him, obviously, you know, sort of knowledge that helped with the authenticity of the performance, but just his sense of his body as an instrument, his voice as an instrument, his sense of pacing and timing and... and uh, and and it just tone it was just it's just it was like watching a master musician kind of. Now, work. did you write the full feature at in short at the same time, or did you, when you get the short you expand it to a feature? No, I wrote I wrote the fir- the full feature first, and, and then, then because because we couldn't get the money for it, I I just took a scene from uh took a, we shot a scene from it essentially as a standalone. Right, uh, I love the dinner scene with the family. Uh, the football scene. Uh, interesting, a lot of laughs for that. Uh, is that based on real life, where someone was <laughs> criticizing you as an artist in uh, your path? No. Well, yeah. Well, I guess it's based on like a lot of dinner table <laughs> scenes that you know. <laughs> there's always that you always feel. You always feel when you're. There's always that lack of understanding, you know, with the outside world, where you, you're in such a pressure cooker, and and it feels like life or death to you. But obviously. It, it's not life or death to the real world. It's not life or death to the outside world. So you kind of, you emerge from what feels like war to you and people are just sort of going, oh, that's nice. You play the drums. That's great. <laughs> you know, and, um, but that is one of those funny scenes where literally like every, 
there's so many people who I've like like I didn't actually think of anyone writing that scene but now I've like I have older cousins who are sort of very athletic and then I have a I have a, a friend of my like my best friend's best childhood friend's mom is on a school board and and then there's another one who's a high school teacher so literally I wound up inadvertently writing a scene that offended every person in my life so, <laughs> so they, they all thought they were in the scene but uh, maybe it's subconscious I don't know but actually it's a great moment it's also when he states like I'd rather be alone and great like yeah. uh, you're the friends and it was really fascinating because it really kind of sets up the end where how far he will like he's already gotten rid of the girlfriend but it was it was important, yeah, that the, you know it's, it'd be it's the midpoint of the movie, you know, and, and, that, and that it really be a kind of fulcrum where, um, and I think there's a little bit of that in him at the very beginning of the movie. It's not like I think he's always been a little sort of uh, uh, he begins the movie as, as ambitious as he ends it. I think it's just that his his kind of you know his 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 hiding of that ambition just kind of gets stripped away, and it's by not just by Fletcher but by dinners like that. I think it's but the combination of being tormented by this guy in, in rehearsal, but then also being treated with total indifference by, by the world outside. So, so I don't know. I mean, it's like I, I wrote the scene. I wrote it really siding with Andrew. I like just like this, you know, these people are dicks, and he should tell them off. But but then I remember when I wrote it, and when I gave the script, everyone told me not to. Everyone told me to cut the scene from the script because they. Because they said this is this is the moment where you'll lose the where everyone you'll you'll lose any sympathy for Andrew. He's like borderline sympathetic before. He's you know not great, but he's like at least we can kind of get on board. But this is the moment where uh, we jump ship and we hate him now. And and yeah, it was and, and you know I heard it from not just one, but like multiple independent sources and and so there was really a lot of like thinking about it and then we shot it and we edited it and actually in the edit it was similar reactions as well like some people would like it but a lot of people were very it was a scene that caused a lot of stress i think because it is the midpoint and because it's the moment where you're trying to really get the audience on board with the with the journey of a character who is kind of unlikable in many ways um that the harshness of how he goes after his family seemed or or these people at the table seemed i think um Unforgivable to some people, but you know, I think uh, I think they get what they deserve. <laughs> a little bit. Well, they weren't so dismi- They weren't dismissive. But then, yeah, yeah, they're really they're really mean to him. I think I don't know. I guess I just find Andrew more more charming than people think. Uh, so the, the the car crash. Did you always envision that would be the biggest one of the biggest representations of how far he's willing to go? It's hard to get bigger than that. Yeah. <laughs> is that, is that um, always your target point in the script? Well, you know, this will be the moment where it really shows. Yeah, well, it was always, it was kind of, there was a sort of sick humor in it in that, you know, there's, I felt like there was, you know, it's almost like a trope now in the kind of sudden out of nowhere car crash has become like very much a, a, a kind of thing that you see a lot these days. And, and so I kind of liked the idea of, of, it almost seemed like kind of a way of joking with that to to have exactly one of those like traditional out of nowhere car crashes that you know you think would kill someone, but then they just keep going and they and you know so like normally we should design the moments so that normally it would be the kind of moment where normally you'd fade to black and then you'd you'd fade into a hospital like you know a month later or a funeral, but you know it's, 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 in this version it would be it'd be to a hospital um, and he convalesces and then you're into your like third act, but. But the point of the scene was actually to kind of that, that you've you've developed this person who's running so much on adrenaline, so much uh, on kind of you know the mind telling him things that his body can't do, 
that it buys him an extra whatever it is, you know, half an hour to literally get out of the car wreck, uh, not think about the blood coming from himself, but thinking about where my sticks are and going and going. And, and then it kept, you know, kept sort of being like, you know, okay, so let's have him get the sticks and then well, let's not stop there. Let's have him actually keep running to the, uh, to the thing. Let's, not stop. let's have him actually be able to slip on a stage quickly enough so that people don't notice and then suddenly he's on this drum set. Now let's have him actually play. Now let's have him tackle Fletcher. It kept becoming this sort of when you kind of tap into his mindset, everything, it becomes this sort of, uh, this kind of rabbit hole where everything just sort of expands upon the thing before. And, 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 and as he's getting crazier and crazier, I needed the movie to feel like it was getting crazier and crazier. So, um, so it's probably the most like subjective part of the movie, you know, where I think it's, it's actually debatable how much of what we're seeing is actually completely real. But, um, but it's, it was about tap, tapping into that kind of utterly irrational, adrenaline-fueled sort of mania. Uh, so the end, we uh, obviously Fletcher sets Andrew up with the wrong song. And when Andrew walks away, there's a feeling of like, we want him to go back, but we also want him to leave, mm-hmm. break free. Did you wrestle that when you're writing? Because the audience is still debating whether or not he should have gone back or not. When you think about it in writing, you're always like, you're, you're yourself are not sure what he should have done? Yeah, th- actually that moment... Um, <clears throat> that moment of him sort of backstage and then it was that that one moment actually did change a lot in the in the writing there used to be much more of a much more of a uh, inter- interaction with his dad mm-hmm. um, that first changed a lot on the page and then even in the cutting we actually shot so the whole thing that you see where they sort of just hug each other and then you know he kind of looks at him there's one line and then he turns around is actually completely cobbled from the edit of a totally different scene that we, what we shot involved security guards it involved like uh, it involved like an extra you know close to a minute of sort of dialogue um, it involved like a struggle with security guards and then invo- it like involved a whole a whole sort of thing that we wound up uh, literally cutting out of the movie and we weren't able to reshoot so we had to <laughs> so we had to like so literally what you're seeing there you're seeing like a blow up of like Paul Reiser with like a security guard there, like coming to grab him. We cut right before the guard grabs him, and then you're on Andrew. Like Andrew makes a look that's actually looks like he's looking at Paul, but he's actually looking at a guard. And then he's like moving his lips, but you don't see it move. Anyways, there's a whole like there's total, total, um, total like faking of of what was there. And the reason was because you know it was just it was kind of what I'd found in the writing and what we found again in the cutting room was just that. You know, especially when you have good actors, less is more. You know, and 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 um, and and it had been too worked over, and uh, and and it, it just you know, it's just, you realize that actually you get much more from just from just a single look and from just a, a near silent moment, um, and that hopefully you got more of that sort of dilemma from that as well. That hopefully the more spare the moment is, the more you give the audience room to actually be sort of grappling themselves with whether they want him to. You know, go with a loving family member to a healthy um, life, or go back into an abusive relationship, which is essentially what he chooses to do. Yeah, I mean, the great line. I know what you. I know it was you, the Fredo line, really. Uh, <laughs> I know it was you, but the rest of it, you can see J.K. suddenly getting so. Oh my God! I finally succeeded. Right. You know, and it was such a great thing. So it's actually a very happy ending. Fletcher gets what he wants. That nod at the end, and Andrew gets what he wants. <laughs> I mean, the idea was to write the saddest, happy ending I could imagine. You know, sort of like it's like the the um, it's the because it is true that Fletcher, in every single way, 
gets exactly what he wants at the end, and that that to me is what hopefully makes the ending a little you know a little troubling um, that you know that kind of behavior gets rewarded um, and but it was something I grappled with myself you know I became a much better drummer as a result of my kind of trial by fire and um, and well, I, I say as as a result I'm not sure maybe I didn't need to be treated the way I was but it, it is the kind of it, that ultimately was the biggest question for me that you know I wanted to try to try to grapple with in the movie is to what extent do the ends justify the means um, to what extent are we willing to kind of put up with monstrous behavior in the name of something we believe in, whether it's art or, or you know, or something else? You know, some kind of achievement that we can all kind of tip, tip our hat to and say that was good, like the drum solo at the end. You know, at what point um, does that outweigh the costs? You know, and uh, so that's why it was very important. You know, both in the moment with the dad, but also everything leading up. And in a way, the entire movie had to lead up to those last moments at the end it had to all be kind of a prelude to that and it had to be a very kind of blunt sort of uh, uh, totally unflinching look at the costs of what sort of you know of what that moment at the end was because otherwise it's it's otherwise I think it it is too sweet a victory and I wanted it to be as unsweet a victory as possible it's interesting because a lot of the students you know I talked about the movie and the resolution is clear but we're just all raise a different feeling on it Right. That's, you know, yeah, that's actually that's great to hear. Yeah. And you know, Andrew did get what he wanted. Yeah. He is a better drummer. I mean, he He's had a better his... drummer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. And now for you, you decided to give up drumming mm-hmm. to pursue an easier field. <laughs> yeah. Filmmaking because as we all know, I mean, you know, movies are just like no one wants to get in there. There's plenty Andy. of like oh, it's great. spots for anyone can do it. It's great. <laughs> I'm I'm the living proof just <laughs> failing upwards. Uh the, the, I mean the, uh, you know the, I mean I actually wanted to do movies before I started drumming. I mean that's so so in a way I don't know if I ever actually considered becoming a professional drummer, um, which again is even more makes me even more fascinated by the mentality I was living in at the time, which again I think sort of inspired this is is the fact that you know at least the kids in this movie are you know you can look at it with a certain that they're operating out of a certain practical sense of you know. Their careers are on the line, which means you know jobs are on the line. You know, uh, there's economic realities on the line, et cetera, et cetera. But in my case, you know, I was a kid who knew I would stop drumming, you know, competitively once I was like out of high school, and and yet that didn't stop every moment of my sort of competitive drumming sort of uh, tenure. It didn't stop every moment of that from being from feeling all or nothing, from feeling life or death, and that was purely because of the because of the environment, because of the conductor, it creates this totally irrational sort of sort of thing where you literally think you're going to die if you don't, you know, if you don't play a measure right. And it wasn't, you know, it's not the case in the movie, but it certainly wasn't the case in 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 my life, you know. So curious, what was the most difficult scene for you to direct? It could be technically or emotionally, either way. Um. You know, another another really tricky... You know, you'd think it was... Obviously, there was, like, scenes that were technically difficult. You know, the climax, obviously, was sort of... Uh, uh, we kind of saved that for the end of the shoot. And so there was this, like, cloud over us during the entire shoot because you kind of knew, no matter how good, like, we could make anything else in the movie if the climax didn't work. It's like... Yeah. We, we weren't... We, it's <laughs> like it was all going to fall flat. So... So I do remember kind of living in dread of, of the, the days when we had to shoot the climax. But 
weirdly, I mean, the hardest scene was uh, for me was uh, it's this really short little moment with Miles alone in his room after he's been excoriated for the first time in band, after he's been slapped and, and, and chastised. And he, he goes home to his room, and he sits there, and his dad calls, and he, um, and he, and he just kind of, you know, we just look at his face, and he grabs the drumsticks and leaves. And, and it's a very short, again, wordless moment. It's another example of a scene that used to be a lot longer. It used to be, uh, he used to actually pick up the phone uh, when his dad was calling and, and, uh, and have a whole conversation with his dad. Um, it was like a three-page scene. And, and it was, again, one of those things where, you know, we directed it. I directed it, and we sort of played Miles played it many different ways. And then because Paul Reiser was on the other end, we could play his dialogue many different ways. And so we wound up, we wound up doing all these permutations in the editing room, only to realize, actually, that it was kind of stopping the movie dead in its tracks at a moment where we really needed to just keep the, keep the energy going. Um, and... And again, you're lucky when you, when you, if you don't have an actor as strong as Miles, sometimes you need that extra mileage. But, um, but with Miles, it turned out, you know, once we literally did what at first seemed unthinkable, pull out all the dialogue, not have him even pick up the phone, literally just see his face for two setups, and then he grabs the drumsticks, that actually said everything that the scene before was trying to say, but less elegantly. So that's the advantage. Like, so you vision something in the script, and you realize your actor can save you. Yeah, like a, a great actor. Yeah, so it really, it's, it is all just, about sometimes the script and the casting. I'm a huge believer in that. You know, the old dictum that you know, 90 percent of directing is casting. It's really, um, it's really, it's really true because it's it's um, it's it's the kind of thing that you wind up learning on the set as well, and you and you relearn in the editing room. You know, you kind of you always write something thinking that you're writing the bare minimum of what you need on the page. You know, or at least I try to. I try to kind of edit beforehand, but you still you still realize that there's going to be stuff you don't need. But sometimes you need that stuff, and sometimes the actors need it too. There there were whole we had whole scenes between Miles and and J.K. early in the movie where J.K. invites him into his office and there was like a five-minute scene of them talking in J.K.'s office before even the first studio band rehearsal. Again, it's like, now I'm like, I'm shocked we ever even shot that. But, um, but I think it actually helped the actors. You know, I think it helps to... It's, it gives them added material, added subtext, added baggage that they can then apply to their characters that we never see, but it's all that iceberg. You know, it's, we see the tip of the iceberg. It's all the stuff underneath the water that sometimes is actually helpful to shoot or to write or to go through that process in some way. Uh, and uh, the whiplash shot, uh, we like to call it. Which, which one? <laughs> your your whiplash shot of constantly the back and forth. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, was that always your vision for that kind of thing? You know, to represent always between the two of them? Um, yeah, I'd done... Uh, yeah, that was a funny. That was actually a funny shot to do because because it was it was you know I initially imagined it as this will be very simple you know there'll just be one person there you know it was in the storyboards and it was just going to whip back and forth, but once we you know once we sort of figured out exactly the tempo of the music and and figured out how short some of the drum fills would be you know you realize how short some of the time is, so like I had done I had done like a student film I remember once you know uh, shooting two jazz musicians trading fours, and did exactly the same kind of moves but you had a full four bars every time, whereas here it's like half a bar and then a bar and then two bars. And so the moves are very erratic and they're very short. So, so I literally just had to stand behind, my, behind the cameraman um, and, you know, who would be kind of like leaned over by the camera and so JK would be there, Miles would be there, and I would just have to poke his, his back essentially too because I couldn't, I couldn't yell because there was the, the, the you know, 
uh, everyone was playing music really loudly. Um, and, and there was no other way for me to essentially kind of direct how the camera would go. So, so there's a great like, behind-the-scenes shot someone showed me once of me just looking like a, looking like a, like a, like a, a cobra or something, just kind of like <laughs> a scorpion, just like staining this, this poor cameraman who's like whipping like a maniac. And it's this giant like, camera, this Alexa camera. That's, it's, like, uh, it's one of those things where you storyboard, you think it's the easiest thing in the world, and then you actually realize, like, yeah. <laughs> it was beautiful. I mean, especially for the end sequence. It was amazing watching that. You know, from Jim yeah. and, uh, oh, thanks. The uh, <laughs> so, what about the music? I mean, you had a lot of great music, obviously, Whiplash. But did you? Did you how do you go about selecting the music, or was it just kind of these are all the different types of music you wanted? Um, yeah, Whiplash was a, a chart I played. Uh, I played in high school, and Caravan was a, that, that that arrangement of Caravan, sort of up tempo arrangement. Of Caravan, Caravan was a chart I played. Um, so we set aside like money to license those two charts, but that was all the money we had for. For licensing, so everything else had to be had to be original. Um, so I worked with uh, my composer Justin Hurwitz and also another composer Tim Simonek to to um, create all these original big band jazz pieces in that style. You know, it was all kind of needed to be sort of '60s, '70s, um, sort of Hank Levy, Maynard Ferguson, Buddy Rich, big band kind of jazz style. Later big band jazz and. Um, and so they, you know, they just kind of got to work, sort of crafting all that stuff. And then once all those pieces were figured out, then also there was, you know, additional stuff like pieces that we hear from, you know, uh, you know, from a record player or from radios. Like, there's nothing, nothing. I think there's, yeah, there's pretty much nothing in the movie is is uh, is pre-existing or licensed except for Whiplash and Caravan. So, so like when they're in the pizzeria and there's a little song playing that he's talking about, you know, 1936, whatever. That's all made up. That's just that something that we <laughs> that we that we, uh, that we had to uh, you know that we had to pre-concoct and then make it sound old and all this sort of stuff. So there's a lot of there's a whole kind of added level of of from beyond what would be normally be scoring that was essentially recreating or approximating these uh, what needed in the world of the movie to be pre-existing tracks. Um, Source cues, essentially needle drop cues, uh, and then once all that was done, then the score, uh, which which Justin did, came came later, and, and the score needed to kind of react to the the on camera stuff. So it needed to not overlap with it, um, but it needed to kind of be in that world. So what Justin wound up doing was making every recording the entire score. There's nothing in the movie that you hear that's not recorded with the same exact instruments you see on screen. Oh, interesting. Um, it's all big band lineup. But he, for the score, he recorded them all separately and just sort of kind of let them, you know, sort of drone out single notes and then he would manipulate the notes. So you wind up with this sort of almost electronic sounding score that's actually entirely, that's entirely acoustic. Um, and the sort of intellectual idea was essentially that it's just like, it's like, it's like the same big band is just following Andrew around <laughs> in his, you know, in, in his nightmares. Um, but that, that way everything hopefully could be not redundant, but in the same sphere. So let's let how uh, so the Oscar experience, all the recognition, of course for you. But how does it feel for all your collaborators, all the people, J.K. and having being able to join do his journey together during this Oscar season? It's it's amazing. I mean, it's you know, it's um, yeah. None of us have sort of been in this kind of you know spotlight before, so um, uh, it's all kind of surreal. Um, I. I do remember when we were shooting, you know, seeing J.K. on set, you know, kind of um, hoping that, you know, that, that that he would get some kind of recognition in some way for for the for the performance. Um, 
I knew, I knew, I had no idea whether, you know, it's like, I had no idea whether what I was doing was any good, but seeing JK, at least I knew that there was something there, you know, that there was something, you could tell when something's special um, that you're shooting, and it doesn't happen every time, you know, and uh, so I felt lucky to be in the presence of him creating that performance, essentially, um, and I just felt lucky with the, with the kind of crew I got to work with, and with, you know, the people who were actually were willing to take a gamble on me, you know, um, for not a lot of money. And uh, for not a lot of time, we had no time. We shot the movie in 20 days, you know, and it's just, it was like, (laughs) it was boot camp for everyone. And so I'm, I'm so, yeah, it's just awesome. You know, it's really, it's nice when you get to, when you get to share the moment a bit. And I like that we're all newbies, like none of us, (laughs) including JK, even though he's been, you know, working for decades, you know, he's never gotten any awards before. And uh, so, which is kind of ridiculous, but, um, but there you have it. And it's, it's actually makes it all the sweeter. Yeah, I mean, if you, your editor is now going to be getting a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, also, it's not just, and that's even Miles. I mean, I thought my, I, yeah. I always liked Miles Teller as an actor, but I was amazed. Now oh, I'm yeah. so excited to see him in more movies. Yeah. And you, you know, so it's very gratifying. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it's, it's yeah, exactly. Gratifying is the right word, it's, and a little surreal. Yeah. Just to let you know, uh, if you have extra Oscar tickets, all of us want to go. So oh, just, just, just I've let got you know. At least five hundred. So <laughs> I'm just going to throw them out. <laughs> uh, so we have time for maybe a couple of the questions, quick questions. So that scene when Fletcher finds out about um, his other student dying, mm-hmm. I feel like it really develops the character because it's the first time when you actually like him in a way. But so did he feel guilty for for? You know, he's student dying, or, or what was the, the thought process behind the character? Yeah, the, in, JK and I talked about it, um, and, you know, essentially in my mind, it was, it, was, it was, you know, I mean, it is yet another instance of Fletcher manipulating his students and lying through his teeth and, and being a kind of, you know, where you think he's genuine, and it turns out he's just totally being a charlatan, and that was a running theme of the character all the way through to the end, you know, for us. But, um, but I think there is a genuine pain there. I think he does kind of ultimately know that he's, that he's at least partly at fault. Um, and so I think the lie comes from that um, more so than purely to kind of um, fake out his students. Um, but it was, it was very much a moment that at the moment needed to feel 100% genuine and 100% like you're saying, of us seeing a different side of JK, even if it turns out we're not seeing as different a side as, as we might have thought. Yeah, so hey. I'm curious, how do you find the right balance between um, scenes of dialogue and scenes of music? You mentioned that during the editing process you took out a lot of scenes of dialogue. Did you have a similar experience with the music scenes? It's uh, a good question. I, I'm... I mean, less so, actually, you know, I mean, I, I think uh, um, the music scenes, essentially, we kind of approached as the action sequences in the movie. They were like our set pieces, you know, um, and, and so those had already been sort of specifically paced throughout the movie, kind of, you know, like the musical numbers in a musical, essentially, sort of, you know, how do you build to them, how do you ebb down, how do you build again to the next one? how do you make each one feel emotionally cathartic or that it moves the story forward in some way. So I think there had been enough thought put into that that we didn't wind up doing any big music sequences that wound up getting, getting cut. Um, but it did, you know, on the level of the writing, it made it a tricky... It was also part of what made the script tricky to kind of sell or kind of convince people by, because you'd have... The dialogue would read fine on the page, but then you'd just have these pages of 
you know, the, the last 10 pages of the script were just describing a drum solo. You know? and it's just like, and that only goes so far. <laughs> and um, so it's, 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 there were these big question marks, I think, for, for everyone involved in the movie, you know, how those things would actually, would actually work, um, which you kind of don't know until the cutting room, in a way. Hi, yeah, so you already mentioned that you shot some scenes and then cut them to kind of make the plot more lean and the characters mm -hmm. more straightforward. And uh, I found the version of, or a version of the screenplay online, and mm. it had this whole bit of Andrew trying to transfer in the first yeah. act. And I was wondering, um, do you think that maybe having that and then shooting it and cutting it kind of was, kind of was necessary to convince people to get the film made? Because it's, you kind of had to prove that just two straightforward characters like crashing into each other would be sort of enough to like, keep the audience with the characters? I think it might. I mean, it's hard to... Uh, since there was never a version of the script itself without him, it's hard to know for sure. But I did find... I think especially also because it's a world that most people reading the script didn't know, weren't familiar with, there was a lot more explanation that was kind of needed on the page than we wound up needing in the script. And, um, and you know, uh, there's also often, you know, these kind of questions. When, whenever you have movies about people who are sort of driven... To, to do something, you know, it's you often get the question of, well, why are they, you know, why does someone want to be the greatest this, or why does someone want to be? I've, I've always found those questions kind of silly because it's 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 so impossible to reduce, you know, down to sort of, you know, like the sort. There used to be stuff. I used to try to write stuff of like Andrew seeing some like some drummer playing and like giving a speech about how like how it moved him and all this sort of stuff, and it's just. It just read so phony, you know. It's it's. I knew I knew myself as either a filmmaker or as a drummer, and I don't like. It's just, I as a movie maker, I don't remember ever not wanting to make movies. So I can't tell you what when I actually sort of changed. And as a drummer, it actually felt all incredibly arbitrary in a way. It felt like it was a product of the environment I was in that made me want to be a great drummer. So that's. I think a lot of it just kind of wound up getting cut for that. Oh yeah. Uh, is it also maybe why you think people might have troubles understanding the dinner scenes? Just because it's so hard to sort of comprehend the stress that somebody's under if you're pursuing that sort of thing, like yeah. music or film or whatever. Yeah, I think so, and I think and uh, and I think it's it again ties to that to that sort of thing that people, especially when reading a script, often need from a character, which is which is to feel like they know them, you know. Um, and I often find it more interesting to, you know know certain key things about a character but but to have a character that can still remain inscrutable to a certain extent and again that's something that Miles is really good at Miles is good at being very open with the camera when he needs to be but but really closing down in other moments um, so I think like for example him in the dinner table scene it winds up being it winds up being like oh this side of the character that we didn't we didn't see before maybe it was there before if you go back and look carefully you know but it's it's he he's good at really keeping that stuff under the surface and keeping the surprise there that I think is truer to True to real life. Well, we always end our show with the same question. Okay. So, can you tell us about a, a, perhaps a childhood movie theater experience you had, a memorable movie, movie that inspired you, or just a trip to the movies that you remember fondly? Uh, yeah, I remember. <laughs> I was actually thinking about this recently. I remember. Uh, I remember when Jurassic Park uh, was in <laughs> uh, was in the theaters. Um, I was a very kind of sensitive, sort of like easily scared child. Um, and I'd read a lot about the movie beforehand, uh, 
like there's there'd been all this stuff about Spielberg saying he wasn't going to take his kids to it, and it was like really violent and dark and all this stuff. And anyway, I, I needed to go see it, and I convinced my parents to let me go to take me to go see it. But I like it was the sort of thing where I had my heart in my chest. I was like really worried that I'd potentially made a terrible mistake. And we and we got to this really crowded theater, and we had to sit like in the middle row of like a really long aisle. And I remember my mom like take, you know sitting me down and seeing how many people were on either side of her. And how difficult it was to even get our seats. Like, looked at me and told me, "You better be serious about this, because I'm not. If you're scared, I'm not taking you out. You're staying here for the whole movie." And I was like, I was so like, it was this moment of truth where I was like, "Oh my God, I got to make this decision." And the lights were going down. I'm like, "Okay, I'm going to do it." And then literally, that goddamn movie, the first scene, the goddamn like raptor just tears a guy apart like literally the screen the speeder is filled with screaming from like the first moment I was just like oh my god oh my god I just literally it was the worst thing that could happen to me and then and then the irony is like I watched the whole movie I went back and watched it like five times again so it's like that to me is just a reminder of of, uh, how fun it can actually be to be I guess scared in a movie theater so actually the real last question is and everybody in the audience wants to know do we rush or drag the (laughs) Q&A I think I think it's right on point. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) We we really appreciate uh, Sony Pictures Classic for uh, setting this up today. Tammy Kim, wonderful Sony Pictures for making this happen, and of course Damien Chazelle. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.